series. Our unbelief series has been going on, and we've been talking about these kind of general things that lead to our uh, skepticism, that lead to shaking uh, of our faith, that create doubt in us, or, or kind of all-out unbelief in those that are outside of faith. And so today we tackle a relatively difficult topic, which is what do we do with evil and suffering? What do we do with evil and suffering? How do we make sense of suffering in the world? How do we make sense of personal suffering, of global suffering? How do we deal with that? What makes uh, this particularly difficult is that um, when you are going through suffering, uh, and those who have grieved a loss, those who have have had personal tragedy in their lives, or have gone through some level of suffering, you all know this. Um, When you go through suffering, you actually end up comparing others' sufferings to yours. And so when, I remember when my sister died, uh, there was this thing in me that when somebody would come and offer their condolences and they hadn't been through something worse than that, I would just kind of turn it off. Like, I don't want to hear it. You don't know what it's like. And I wouldn't say that. And my heart wasn't that ugly. And yet at times I felt like it was getting there. That there's this comparison thing that what do we do with suffering, especially when people haven't suffered what we've suffered. And yet at the same time, it goes the other way that my parents who have lost a child, we have three sacred days a year that come around my sister's birthday, the day of her death, and then the day, uh, anniversary day of her lung transplant, which is coming up in a couple weeks. The first kind of where this whole journey started for us. And on those three days, um, I feel uh, an urge to reach out to my family and encourage them in some way. And I have no words. I don't know what to tell them. I don't know what it, it feels like to be them. So I end up saying, I have no idea what this day is like for you, but I just want you to know I love you. Because what am I going to tell them that's going to make them feel better? Because I have no idea what their pain is. And this is the isolation that suffering creates in all of us. It's the isolation that grief creates in all of us, where we end up painting ourselves into a little box, and we don't know how to get out of it. And then when we feel isolated, we also go, God, where are you in this? Because I don't hear you. So what we're going to do is, is walk through this pretty quickly. How do we make sense of suffering? And I'm basing a lot of this on a talk that Tim Keller give, gave in 2006. And um, if you want a, a difficult speaking engagement, he was invited to speak to the families of those who lost people on 9-11, on the five-year anniversary of, of the attacks on 9-11. So we had in a big auditorium all of the people who had suffered a pretty recent and pretty tragic uh, loss. And he had 10 minutes. So we're going to try to do uh, in about 25 or 30 what he did in 10. The question that he knew, and I'm stealing this directly from Tim Keller, the question that people ask in suffering is this. He said, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then he might be good, but he's not all-powerful. On the other hand, if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he could stop it, and yet he won't stop it, then he might be all-powerful, but he isn't good. And this is the skeptical point where our friends and neighbors come from. This is the place of doubt where we find ourselves when we're asking the hard question of how does this make any sense? When you ask the question those ways, the reality is either way, the good and all-powerful God of the Bible can't exist. It's a pretty formidable argument. So what do we say to that? How do we make sense of it? How do we address it? First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Scripture says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope, you can underline that, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is underlined imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, by who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not know, see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Okay. So, the question comes up when suffering hits us, when evil and suffering uh, confront us in the world, when we encounter that hurdle, a lot of people, and somewhat understandably so, a lot of people abandon God. They ask those first two questions, they can't find the answer, and they abandon God. And I would like to start by just saying abandoning God in a moment of, tri- of trial and suffering is the, probably the least rational thing to do. It doesn't actually help. So we can get why people would do it emotionally, why God can't exist, or I'm abandoning God, because if this is the God and this is the, the world he created, I don't want anything to do with him. That exists. That's real, and people do that. And emotionally, that feels good in the moment, but it doesn't make actual sense. It doesn't help us make sense of God. People say, I can't believe in God because of suffering. Philosophers would say, if God doesn't exist, then everything is permitted. If there is no God, Sartre would say, then, then all feelings in, it's all feelings in natural order. If there is no God, in the middle of your suffering, if there is no God, I don't want to believe it anymore, then we're left with feelings and natural order, which is uh, not really a hopeful thing. And so if we're down to natural order, there's no objection to violence, there's no such thing as injustice, and your grief is really just a waste of time. That's what happens when we remove God from the equation when we're grieving and suffering. To which the response, usually from uh, well-intended, smart people, is, yeah, 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 that doesn't necessarily mean that because we have civility now and we've evolved. We have the society now. We have a construct to which if we're being intellectually honest, we would say, no, those are imaginary constructs. Those are imaginary constructs held by the powerful people in the world to secure their odds of their genes moving forward. Because if, we're, if, we're, if there's no God, then the point of this is to see my DNA keep going. And so all the civility and the, the niceness and the the pomp and circuit, that, that's all made up by powerful people to make sure that they can emotionally get through the day and get to the next one and get their genes to go forward. None of this is entirely hopeful. None of this makes me feel a lot better. When I am suffering, none of those things brings me any relief. So if we say God doesn't exist, we end up being giraffes slapping necks together. What in the world does that mean? Okay. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my family, uh, we're, we were watching a nature documentary of, about the desert in Africa, the southern African desert, and there's these desert giraffes. Girls, is this true? This is true. And what happens is there's this one spot in the desert where this creek bed runs, and it, and it actually runs with water, and it's just like no life outside of this, this half-mile creek bed. And there's one bull giraffe, one male giraffe that kind of owns that property. And so when another desert giraffe wants to challenge him, he comes into the property and they look at each other and they stand side by side in their weird giraffe bodies and they just kind of look at each other and you're like, giraffes are pretty cool, I guess. I mean, how do giraffes fight? They start slapping necks. One, one at a time, they just kind of rear back and they slap with the neck and, then, and it makes this, like, this terrible sound and then they go back and forth and one slaps the other one in the back and the other one slaps him in the head and they have those weird little giraffe horns which you've always wondered, what are those for? And they start cutting each other. Eventually, they get exhausted. Can you imagine slapping necks for that long? And one of them falls down and that one loses. And the other one gets to go and since we have children in the room, gets to go ask the female giraffe to prom, Okay. If you remember nothing else, remember that if God doesn't exist, we are just giraffes slapping necks, okay? <laughs> Abandoning God in times of trial and suffering doesn't help us make sense of suffering. So what does is the question. We will look back at something, we have to look forward to something, and we need to look into something. Back, forward, into. First, look back. Verse 7 said, uh, in suffering we're tested by fire. As, as gold purified in the fire, we're refined. You're going through something difficult, you are being refined. Even if you don't like it, it's happening. 
A story that this kind of alludes to in a really interesting way is a story in, in the book of Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he said, if you don't bow down, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. They refused. As the story goes, he had the furnace heated hotter than it's ever been before, and he had all three of them thrown into the furnace. The furnace was so hot that the guard who threw them into the furnace died because of the heat. He looks up. King Nebuchadnezzar is watching, and in the furnace, he sees not three figures but four, called Christophany. He said, one of them who appeared to be like the Son of Man. He throws three in. There are four coming out, and they walk out of the fiery furnace, and he says, they don't even smell like smoke. They walk through the fire. They were tested, made pure. And I think that story is going to be interesting as we keep going. Isaiah 43 says, when you walk through the fire, not if, but when. If you are a human being, you will walk through the fire. You will have your trial. The promise of God is not to keep us from the flames, but the promise of God is, I care so much about you, I will be in them with you. God looks at us in our trial and our suffering, and God says, I promise it won't break you. I promise it's refining you, and I promise to be there with you. Isaiah 48.10 says, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. Ever feel like you've been there? In the furnace of affliction? God's promise is, I'm going to be with you in your affliction. What does that really mean? How does, how does that really work itself out? What are we talking about? So look back. Only in Christianity and all the world religions does God and Jesus become vulnerable and subject to suffering, pain, and death. So we look to the cross. We look back. When we are in trial and suffering, we look back to the cross. It says if you're in prison and in pain and in suffering, look to Jesus, who was imprisoned and tortured and suffered for us. If you're asking God why or begging him to move in the storm of your life, you can look back at Jesus in the garden. With so much agony, he is sweating blood. Ever feel alone? You can look at Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus experienced no ordinary suffering. Jonathan Edwards said of this Christ, he said, the sorrow and distress with Jesus' soul then suffered arose from the full and immediate view that Jesus had of the cup of wrath, which was vastly more terrible than, wait for it, Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. That Jesus had a near view of the furnace of wrath in which he would be cast. Whereas those three were thrown in, he's saying Jesus had to stare face to face with the furnace itself and choose to walk in. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know that that is where he was going and what he was about to suffer for us. This Jesus had no ordinary suffering. So we look back to the cross and we see what suffering cannot mean. When we look at the cross, we see what suffering can't mean. It can't mean God doesn't love us. It can't mean God doesn't care about us. It can't mean that God is remote or hands-off or indifferent because Jesus refutes those. It also means that we can't look at God and say, you don't know how I feel. Don't tell me how to feel about my pain. Then in our moment of great crisis and trial, that we can't look at God and go, you don't know what this is like. God knows worse. The presence of Jesus on the cross tells us that God loves us more than we can imagine, cares for us more than we can fathom, and is willing to go through infinite suffering to invite us to intimate relationship. When we are in trial, we look backward. Second thing we do is look forward. Verse 3 and 4 said, We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Peter is laying out hope. The path through the furnace, Peter is saying, is hope. It's this belief, no matter how distant, that there is a plan, that this will get better. 
that there is a relief or a rescue that is possible. So that no matter where you are on your journey and on your trial, at the very deepest valley, Peter is saying there is hope. It's imperishable. It can't be destroyed. It's undefiled. It can't be sullied. It's unfading, meaning it's not going away. It's not going to degrade over time. We would say hope is the bridge from hurting to healed. Hope is the bridge from hurting to healed. Peter called it living hope. That matters. Not manufactured hope, not pretend hope, not just trying to get through the day hope, not I hope tomorrow's better than today. Living hope. There is life in it. It is animated. It is relational. Because of what we know is behind us, we can carry the hope of what lies before us. Our living hope is in looking backwards and realizing that that is awaiting us. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For the perishable body must be put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That the law was fulfilled in him, and that sin was vanquished in him, and that through his death and resurrection we are not bound to that anymore. That death has been consumed by life. Death has been consumed by life. Think about this. When you have a steak, is that cow alive anymore? It is death. And when you consume it, does it fuel death in you or life? Vegans in the room are like, well, I got an idea about this. But no, when you consume anything, broccoli, it is no longer living. The plant has been killed. It can't grow anymore. When you consume, when, when, when life consumes death, death breeds more life. Death has been swallowed up by life, says the scripture, that Christ has swallowed up death and it will be no more, that it is all being used for good. It is all being used for refinement. It is all being used for God's glory. You ever lose something? Find it later and then actually love it more than you used to as a, as a result of that? Earrings, children, whatever. We once uh, lost Sam the dog. Sam has not always been popular in our house. This is a result of Sam being procured at a moment where we had an 18-month-old uh, in the house as well. So we were potty training a dog and a human at the same time, and those can get confusing. And so it was a little bit of a mess. We have some stories to tell, but not in a family setting. Sam was not always popular. One day we went on vacation. We left him with some neighbors. The neighbors call us when we're on vacation a few hours away, and they say, by the way, Sam is gone. I think he got out from under the fence, and we haven't seen him, and we looked, and we can't find him. And we say, well, look a little more. I'm sure you'll find him. It'll be okay. We go back to our vacation. The next day they say, hey, he never came back. We lived in this area, suburban part of San Antonio, that has a bunch of kind of dry creek beds and, and green belts and woods around it. And so uh, lots of coyotes, lots of interesting animals living out in the woods and a morsel of a six-month-old little white dog that would stand out a little bit. We got home and figured out this was probably not going to go well. We walked through the woods anyway. We put his stuff out so he could smell it and maybe come back to it. We kind of did all the things we were supposed to do, but very quietly, I started taking his stuff away. Very quietly, the food bowl went into the cabinet, and the bed kind of got put into the closet, and all of his little things went away. And I was just slowly erasing the memory of Sam, going, look, this isn't going to end well, and so let's not do this all at once. Long story short, someone spots Sam in their backyard. He's drinking out of their pool. Steph peels around the corner, pulls up, and he's been running from everybody. A couple people saw him, and he runs. So she opens the back door, and, and we got two little girls who Sam loves a whole lot. And Bella gets out, and she gets on one knee, and she calls him, and he runs over real fast, peeing everywhere, you know, as excited dogs do. 
he immediately went and got pampered and got like a full haircut because he's all matted and disgusting and had coyote urine on him and whatever. And so, is that too far? Okay. Um, and when he came back home, you would have think he was the greatest thing on earth. Oh, stupid Sam became, oh, Sam, we love you so much. Can he sleep with me? No, can he sleep with me? I'll give him more treats. I'm going to give him a treat. I'm going to comb him while you give him a treat. And it was just like this, Sam is the greatest thing on earth. And now that fades over time, true. But it is possible, if we think about it, that when lost things are found, we have a new appreciation for them overall. So it is true with our lives. So it is true with a marriage. So it is true with a child. When lost become found, we have a brand new appreciation What we know to be true is many people in this room have lost important things. More importantly than that, many people in this room have lost loved ones. Thinking about them in this moment, we could burst at the thought of seeing them restored and whole and full of life. That, That person that we lost, being back in our presence, you would give everything for the embrace of a moment for a momentary laugh, for a touch. And the message of Scripture is, suffer well today, pilgrims. That the promise of a day of restoration is coming, and the hope of that day will be a bridge from here to there. That those of us who have lost are not without hope that they will be found. They're not without hope that we might be reunited. That there is a time and a place where that will actually happen. There is a new Jerusalem that is coming that means we no longer have to be separated. So we look backwards. We look forwards and we look inward. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus endured the cross. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Jesus had a living hope. We've already found that the way from here to there, the way from from suffering to healing is hope. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. It was the only way through the furnace. The only way to endure suffering is to have a hope greater. And so we ask the question, what was Jesus' living hope? What was the living hope of Christ in this moment of suffering? What was the thing that was getting him through, that thing that he held on to that said, I will persist? People usually say, well, it was like fellowship with God. Like his oneness with God was his hope. And that can't be it because Jesus left his oneness with God to come and suffer. So suffering wasn't going to be persisting because of his hope for fellowship with God. He had that and he left it for something else. What brought him out of that oneness to suffer? What took him out of that perfect fellowship to agony? Isaiah 53, 11, the first part of the verse says, when he sees all that is accomplished, speaking of the Messiah of Jesus, when he sees all that is accomplished in his anguish, he will be satisfied. When Jesus sees what he has to go through and he sees the result of it, all of the agony will be satisfactory. What could make infinite suffering worth it? Second part of the verse. And because of his experience, my righteous servant, Jesus, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. When he sees what is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. What will satisfy him? Bearing the sins and counting those righteous who previously were not. You, you are his living hope. blows my mind. It's a reality we don't think about often enough that the living hope of Jesus Christ was you in this room. That his suffering was on our behalf, not um, cosmically and not theoretically, but personally. 
You are the reason he came down and plunged himself into the fiery furnace, though he knew the pain that would come. You, beautified, unspoiled, unfading, perfect, restored, resurrected, you was what he was aiming for. It is, makes me feel really small to consider just how incredibly large that love must have been. You are so loved. To know you and show you that you are loved, Jesus endured suffering like no other. So God doesn't love our suffering, but he loves us enough that he was willing to suffer for us, to become our bridge and to become our living hope as we walk through the trials of life. Jesus on the cross, we were his living hope. We were the ones he was there for. We were the thing getting him through. We were the purpose for his trial. And so in our trial, the tables turn and we now have a living hope in him. We have a living hope looking backwards going, he's figured this out. He died for me. He gave me hope and salvation. We have a hope looking forwards going, all of the loss and the pain and the trial, there is a day that is coming when the tears will not come anymore. And we look inward and we recognize that Christ came for us personally. My prayer is that in recognizing how loved we are, that we might find a new strength and endurance as we walk through the trials that get sent our way. We're not victims of a world hosted by an apathetic God or a good God who just isn't very powerful. We are chosen ones, set apart, loved more than we can ever imagine. So look back. Jesus loves you and gave everything for you. Look forward. Restoration is coming and this is not the end. And look inward. You are God's treasure. His living hope. So my prayer for us is that we would feel that pleasure today and whether you're in a trial today or the next one is not coming until tomorrow, that that would help us be on that bridge that takes us from hurting to healed. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are faithful to us. You are gracious to us. God, when we consider what was done on our behalf, when we consider the depth of your love for us, when we look backward and consider the cross and the willing sacrifice on our behalf, Lord, I pray that it humbles us all. Not humbles us to guilt or humbles us to shame or humbles us to, to feeling bad that we caused something, but God, I pray we're humbled into hope again, knowing that we are precious and treasured and that you've promised that there's something awaiting us that's even greater. God, we pray for every person in this room who is hurting with the knowledge that Everybody is in a battle. God, for the hearts in here that are grieving loss, for the hearts in here that are suffering silently, Father, I pray that they would feel your presence in a real way today. As we consider your word, as we sing songs about you, as we think of what was done for us, God, would you bring us hope and put us on that bridge to healing. Thank you for sending Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.